Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. and I'm the director of the Mary B. Martin School of the Arts. And I want to welcome you to the TSU campus and to this lecture tonight in Roger Stout Hall. Um, you know, people, this is our sixth season of events at the Mary B. Martin School of the Arts. And people have accused us of having fairly eclectic seasons. <laughs> and this year, I mean, we've had just a huge variety of things. We've had monks from Tibet, doing a mandala sand painting, and we've had Ricky Skaggs, and now we have a UFO expert. I mean, this is crazy. So you can see that we have a very broad definition of what the arts are at ETSU, um, which is a good thing. So if you don't know about the Mary B. Martin School of the Arts, um, I see a lot of new faces out here. I really encourage you to sign up for our mailing list, um, our season brochure, obviously the season is coming to a conclusion, but our season brochure is in the back of the room, so please take one with you and go to our website and join our mailing list. So we'd love to see you come out for more things. I want to give some thanks tonight. Um, I have an incredible staff to work with, and I'm very fortunate. So Heidi Ailey is back there directing people to seats. amazing job with our marketing materials. She's just <laughs> Christy Smith, who's not with us tonight. Um, our student workers are remarkable. Daniel's back there taping this for us tonight, so we've got great student workers. Um, but I also want to thank the volunteers that come out to so many of our events. Um, our volunteers aren't really helping us tonight very much. Although a lot of them are here in the audience, and it's always nice to have them enjoy themselves instead of working for us. So I'm glad they're here tonight. So thank you for coming in. Um, I also want to thank Catherine Weiss and the, Depart the Department of Literature and Language here at ETSU. Um, Dr. Catherine Weiss is the chair of the department, and she brought this suggestion to me with a big smile on her face and I said okay let's do it and then look what happens we have we have standing room this is kind of remarkable so I, I want to thank everyone 
Um, a couple things, if you have your cell phone with you, if you wouldn't mind silencing it so that um, everyone can hear. If you can't hear, signal us, and we'll try to get the volume up a little bit more. Okay? All right. I'd like to um, talk a little bit about Nick Pope. I think many people in this room know a lot more about Nick Pope than I do. I'm, I'm not... I'm not convinced about UFOs, but I think he's changing my mind a little bit. Um, so Nick is an author, journalist, and TV personality. He used to run the British government's UFO project at the Ministry of Defense. While working on the MOD's UFO project, Nick also looked into alien abductions, crop circles, animal mutilations, remote viewing, and ghosts. He is now recognized as a leading authority on UFOs, the unexplained, and conspiracy <coughs> theories. He works with various PR, marketing, and advertising agencies, promoting sci-fi films and advertising campaigns themed around the unexplained. He has worked for clients that include Microsoft, 20th Century Fox, and Sony Pictures, and has been involved in promoting The X-Files, I Want to Believe, and the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still. Nick lectures all around the world, and this has included addressing the Oxford Union, the Cambridge Union Society, as well as speaking at the Science Museum, the Royal Albert Hall, and Global Competitiveness Forum 2011. We're in really good company here. He's written several books. His science fiction titles are Operation Thunderchild and Operation Lightning Strike. His nonfiction titles include Open Skies, Closed Minds, About UFOs, and the Uninvited about the alien abduction mystery. And his latest publication, I've seen a few other people carrying this around tonight, Encounter in Rendlesham Forest about the 1980 UFO incident. And I have to add this. This kept me up last night. So <laughs> not only do I have a gravelly voice, but I'm tired because I was up again too late. So um, without further ado, I'd like all of us to welcome Nick Pope to each other. Just dim the lights, I think. Or am I? <laughs> yes, so we can see that. Well, I, I would like to uh, do some thank yous as well. I'd like, of course, to thank Professor DeAngelis and Professor Weiss. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Lise and, and Heidi and uh, everyone at the Mary B. Martin School of Arts and ETSU who have been so kind and have brought me here. And of course, I'd like to thank you for coming along. And I'm sorry for those of you at the back who don't seem to have gotten a seat and have to stand, but I'm standing too. So, you know, <laughs> we have a little bit of solidarity there. And so, I'm going to speak for about an hour and then throw it open to you for questions, comments, and we can have a conversation about all this. My background is that I worked for the British government for 21 years at the Ministry of Defence, which is the UK's equivalent of your DOD, and I did a number of different postings there. I was a civilian employee, and from 1991 through to 1994, my job was to research and investigate the UFO mystery to determine whether there was any evidence of any threat 
to the defense of the United Kingdom or anything of more general defense or scientific interest. And this work that I did, and um, obviously the British government had, had people doing this for decades, so there's, there's a bit of a history. This work mirrored something that you had here in the United States called Project Blue Book, which was the United States Air Force research program into the UFO mystery. And just to show you, this is me at the Ministry of Defense in around about 1994. This is the only surviving picture of me on the MOD's UFO project, all the classified files in the background. And look, there I am with black hair. So, <laughs> so many more years of government service followed, and uh, now you see the results. So, um, obviously the Ministry of Defense's reason for looking at the UFO phenomenon at all isn't necessarily because we all corporately believe in extraterrestrial life, and arguably it had more to do with worries about Russians than Martians. But, obviously we didn't rule anything out, and we didn't rule anything in. I received around about two or three hundred UFO reports each year. Most of these turned out after investigation to be misidentifications of fairly ordinary objects and phenomena, aircraft lights, weather balloons, meteors, satellites, etc. In another proportion of cases, there was just too little information to really determine what it was we were dealing with. And in around 5% of cases, it was genuinely unknown. And again, of course, it's important to say that unknown does not necessarily mean alien spacecraft. But as I said, we didn't rule it out. In, in a sense, how, how could one rule it out if we weren't able to explain it either way? So I think what's interesting is that a few years ago, uh, I, I don't know whether an event like this would have been put on um, at, at a university. I think the uh, political, the media, the academic, the scientific establishment were you know, a little bit uh, wary of this sort of subject. A few years ago, talk of other dimensions would have been regarded as crazy. And now work going on at the Large Hadron Collider, people are talking quite openly about the possibility of verifying some of the more exotic physics theories about hidden dimensions. A few years ago, uh, the UFO subject itself would have been regarded as more science fiction than science fact, and yet, and yet, if you look at the mainstream media, I don't know how many of you have followed this in recent months, but there seems to be a ramping up of mainstream media engagement about this subject. John Podesta, former chief of staff to the President of the United States, tweeting that his biggest regret about his, his time in, in, um, in that post was that he wasn't able to open up the UFO files. Um, the search for extraterrestrial life on the agenda at the AAAS meeting in San Jose a couple of months ago. NASA 
dropping hint after hint after hint, being faithfully reported in the media, that it's really only a matter of time before we detect other planets much the same as Earth, and maybe, just maybe, we find evidence of life. Maybe some of that life will be primitive microbial life, but maybe it will be intelligent life. So I think there are a number of related questions, and I'm going to try and skim through a lot of them. Uh, is there life elsewhere in the universe? Might any of that life be visiting us? They're not the same question, but they're related. And what I think is the most interesting question of all, what would be the consequences of finding alien life? All too often in the UFO subject, I think, we get a very polarized debate. You get this kind of skeptic versus believer dogfight. And each camp has its deeply entrenched views. And there's really not much middle ground. So I, I don't suppose a true believer would ever convince a, a diehard skeptic and vice versa. So let's maybe try and get beyond that and say, well, look, let's just play a game and say, what if it's true? What would happen then? Because I think that takes us to a more interesting and arguably more productive place. Uh, oh, yes. Um, <laughs> just, just to show that I have indeed done some work to promote the odd um, sci-fi movie from time to time. That's me in a very tired, jet-lagged-looking David Duchovny. <laughs> and I don't know how many of you are X-Files fans, but it's great to see the series uh, coming back. So. That is the real X-Files. It's not quite as glamorous. My job at the Ministry of Defense did not involve running around in dark warehouses with torches and guns, and I was never assigned an agent scully either. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's kind of... Uh, those are the British government's real-life X-Files, and uh, they... Uh, we'll, we'll probably get into some discussion and questions about conspiracies and cover-ups, but it is interesting and telling, I think, that in the United Kingdom and in other countries, the government is in the process of declassifying and releasing a lot of its material on UFOs. Now, there is a funny story about that. Of course, the MOD really didn't have a spaceship hidden away in a hangar anywhere. Or if they did, I'm afraid they didn't tell me. But it was consistently our policy to downplay the true extent of our interest and involvement in this phenomenon uh, with the British Parliament, with the media, and the public. So the sorts of sound bites that were routinely put out for decades when anyone asked was, well, we glance at these reports just to see if there's any defense threat. And it's all tied up more with foreign military aircraft, and there's nothing to it. The whole thing's of, of no real defense significance. And in May 2008, when the government started releasing the files, they had to do it in batches, because there was rather a lot of it. And in, in the end, and this process is not yet even complete, um, I know you probably hate audience participation, but let's, let's do a guessing game. Uh, on this subject on which the government said we had very little interest, uh, do you think they had 52 documents on UFOs, 
520 documents on UFOs or 5,200 documents on UFOs? Anyone? Okay. Okay. I, with apologies, it was a horrible trick question. I slipped a decimal point. They actually had 52,000 documents, some of which had been classified secret UK eyes only at the time. 52,000 documents, and the process still isn't complete. They still keep finding a few files that they forgot about at the back of the cupboards. So in all, there's going to be around 60,000 documents. Not bad for a subject on which the government said, well, there's no real interest in this. We, we glance at these reports. 60,000 documents? Well, oops, wrong way. I know you hate this as well. More, this is, I promise, my last bit of audience participation. Can anyone remember what sci-fi movie that is from? Anyone shout out an answer? Last Starfighter. Last Starfighter, anyone else? Close and count. Okay. It's not actually from any sci-fi movie at all. It is a real aircraft. Um, <laughs> this is actually an image of something called Tyrannis, named after the Celtic god of thunder. And I'm pleased to say, um, in a world where everyone thinks America, you know, is absolutely leading the world, that's British. Hurrah! <laughs> <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> We can still build things. <laughs> and this is, you can, you can go onto the internet, and if you, if you Google Tyrannis, you can find it on the Ministry of Defense website, um, in the mainstream media too. That's from the official launch. Does anyone think that they're ever so slightly playing into the kind of sci-fi meme of a, sci a spaceship hidden away in a hangar? I, I do. Anyway, that's... That's the sort of real kind of um, advanced prototype aircraft and drone that's out there. And if this is the stuff that they are unveiling to the media, what else have they got that's maybe 10 or 15 years ahead of even that? So this was the sort of problem that we faced on the UFO project when people would tell us about these things. Very often the question was, well, yes, but is it one of ours? And of course, with highly classified information, it's so compartmentalized that unless you're on the program, um, you don't have the need to know. So very often with UFO investigations, the suspicion was that one part of government was investigating something that might actually belong to another part of government. That has not yet been built, but is an image which, again, I pulled off the Ministry of Defense website uh, just a few weeks ago. It is uh, something that will make Tyrannis maybe look a little bit dated. This is an Anglo-French uh, project. Again, you know, um, lots of countries working on this sort of thing. Lots of stuff out there. And these are the sorts of things that people are talking about building. And how difficult will it be to disentangle this from people who say that they've seen UFOs? Because I don't know about you, but, but you know, when you look at those sorts of things, it really does look like something from a sci-fi movie. And sometimes, you know, with some of these engineers, these aeronautical engineers, you can't help but think they're almost, you know, I'm 
grew up on sci-fi and now want to do it, make it real. This one, though, let's, let's talk about a real, real case from the British government's UFO file. In December 1980, uh, near the twin bases of Bentwaters and Woodbridge in the United Kingdom, now these were uh, on British soil, but these bases were actually part of the US military presence in Europe. So um, American security police and law enforcement personnel at these twin bases of Bentwaters and Woodbridge in December 1980 saw a strange light in the forest that lies between the twin bases. They thought that a light aircraft might have crashed, started a fire. They went out. They did not find a crashed aircraft. They found a landed metallic craft object of some description. This is a sketch of it made by one of the witnesses, Sergeant Jim Penniston. And for those of you who uh, watch any of these UFO shows like Ancient Aliens, you may recall having seen Jim Penniston and his colleague John Burroughs, uh, with whom I uh, co-wrote the book, Encounter in Rendlesham Forest. But this is Jim Penniston's sketch of this UFO that was on the ground. And one of Jim's things was that he was a specialist in aircraft recognition, both NATO and Warsaw Pact. And he said, Look, this was like nothing I'd ever seen before in my life. And it had these kind of strange symbols on the side. And he was perfectly familiar with uh, the Cyrillic alphabet. And he said that was not it. it. It was more like some sort of bizarre Egyptian hieroglyphic pattern. Um, this object, whatever it was, was in a small clearing in the forest. It stayed there for a while. Um, then it slowly rose up above the ground, and as it cleared the tops of the trees, it accelerated away at very high speed. And Jim simply wrote in his police notebook, speed impossible. Now, very briefly, that UFO did show up on radar directly over the base. And... Um, calls were going in both to military and civil uh, radar bases and they, they were told at one point you, you have a, a bogey, an, an uncorrelated target over the base. It stayed there for a couple of sweeps of the radar and then it was gone. But more importantly, and I apologize for the poor quality of that photo, it is the only surviving image that we have, there may be some that have been secreted away somewhere, of the alleged landing site uh, the morning after this took place. And you can just see um, at the extreme right-hand side in a lighter outfit uh, a United States Air Force officer and next to him in the darker outfit a British civil police officer. Um, these, these, as I say, were American bases on British soil, but the encounter itself took place off base. So it was quite a complicated jurisdictional issue that we got into. But that 
that small that area where this thing landed, um, there, there were some more sightings on the next night, and on the third night, there was a an awards ceremony going on, and the senior base personnel were there, and they were getting ready to present these awards. And the door burst open, and one of the young officers came up, he saluted, and breathlessly he said, Sir, it's bag. And everyone looked a little bit confused for the moment and said, What are you talking about? What's bag? And the officer said, The UFO, sir. It's returned. The senior officers conferred for a moment, and then the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, said that he would take a small team out into the forest, in his words, to debunk this UFO nonsense for once and for all. So Colonel Holt went out there, and he took with him some very powerful lights on the backs of, of um, flatbed trucks called light alls. And he said, if there's anything unusual in the forest, we're going to light the whole place up and flush it out. But the lights started failing. And uh, just to cycle back, because of time constraints, I, I've had to leave a few things out. But when John Burroughs and Jim Penniston had their encounter on the first night, their, their radios were malfunctioning. So there seemed, something seemed to be interfering with all this kit. And so Colonel Holt couldn't get the light holes to work. So while he was waiting for the new ones to arrive, he and his team went back to this site and said, well, let's go to the place where the guys reported this on the first night. And when they got there, they found that on the ground there, and, and it was December in the UK, and it gets pretty cold, the ground was frozen solid, but there were fairly fresh indentations where Colonel Holt estimated that an object weighing several tons had indeed been there, slap bang in the center of that small clearing, and had made these indentations in a broadly triangular shape. Now, one of the people who Colonel Holt took out with him was the disaster preparedness officer, Monroe Nevels. And Nevels had with him a Geiger counter. And it was actually obvious to them, just looking at the site visually, the trees around the edge of the clearing, the, face, the inward facing sides of them seemed to be burnt and scorched. So they were a little bit concerned about this. So Neville's got out the Geiger counter. And they started to get some readings. And those readings peaked in the three indentations where this object had apparently come to rest. And on the inward facing sides of the trees where these burn marks seemed to be. Later on, and a, uh, those radiation readings were sent to the British Ministry of Defence. And the defence intelligence staff there, which is part of the scientific and technical 
intelligence side of the operation. Uh, produced the document, which has now been declassified and released. It's in the public domain. And it said that the radiation levels at this landing site seemed to be, quote, significantly higher than the average background, unquote. So again, there, there seemed to be some physical corroboration uh, of what it was that all these people were seeing. Now, at about that point, somebody shouted out, look, through the trees. And there was a bright light. And this light began to come closer. And um, Colonel Holt and his team came out of the forest into a farmer's field. Um, were looking up in amazement uh, as, as multiple lights were buzzing around in the sky, performing erratic maneuvers. Colonel Holt said that this thing was, it was almost like this thing was doing a grid search. And at one point, he said it fired a, a narrow beam of light down at the ground, shortly in front of him and his team. And speculating about that in later years, Halter said, was this a weapon? Was this a warning? Was this communication? What was this? So far from fulfilling his aspiration of going out and debunking this UFO nonsense, he actually became part of the story and became one of the most senior serving military officers to have not only seen a UFO whilst on duty, but actually made an official report about it. Um, one of the other documents from the Ministry of Defense's case file had a very interesting final paragraph. And in talking about the aftermath of this incident, it said that General Gabriel had been briefed on it and had taken various items relating to the investigation back to his headquarters in Rammstein, Germany. Now, uh, those items would have included soil samples, scrapings from the trees, uh, and various other things. Why this is particularly interesting is that General Gabriel was Commander-in-Chief, United States Air Force in Europe. So he was the senior USAF officer anywhere in Europe. Now, wait a minute, you might say to yourself, hasn't Project Blue Book been closed down? That's certainly the official line that all American government research and investigation into UFOs uh, was finished in 1969 when Project Blue Book was terminated, and yet here we have the senior USAF general in Europe being briefed on a UFO incident and taking items relating to the, the case back to his headquarters. And by the way, the Ministry of Defense, the British government, only got to find out about that afterwards, and we were not pleased. <laughs> 
if you read that document, it finishes up by saying, perhaps it would be reasonable to ask whether we could see this too. Well, us Brits have a very restrained and diplomatic way of saying things, but you may take that as meaning that we were absolutely furious. <laughs> and that's, that's, the, that's the book that uh, I recently co-wrote with, with the two witnesses at the heart of this incident. And, oh, uh, that's just um, my latest sci-fi novel, which I just put in for no apparent reason other than a, 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 sl a sly book plug. But, um, <laughs> but actually, I think I will come on to that, because it does, joking aside, it does lead us on to this whole issue of extraterrestrial life. And, I mean, even if you've never read a UFO book, even if you're someone who's not seen any of these shows on TV, chances are that image will resonate with you, and chances are that you will have heard of Roswell, even if you are diehard skeptic and think it's all rubbish, because Roswell, 1947, when something, we don't know what, crashed, and that image are now so firmly embedded in the public consciousness and in pop culture that these, these concepts of UFOs and science fiction and indeed cover-ups, conspiracies through shows like The X-Files become inextricably bound up with each other. But I want, I, I can dip back to some cases, but I, I said earlier that you know, the, one of the most interesting things about all this, I think, is to set aside this, well, is it or isn't it, and say, well, what would the implications be if, if we did discover extraterrestrial life? And I, I put down a few broad headings here, because I think in, in many ways this is something that would touch many, many aspects of our lives. And to people who say, you know, why, why is any of this important? I, I always say a couple of things. And, and these, these are two of my, I suppose, best-known sound bites on this whole question. The first one is that actually on the question of does any of the UFO data hold up? Is any of it compelling? Uh, or is it all just misidentification, hoax, and delusion? I say this. The skeptics have to be right every single time, but the believers only need to be right once, and everything changes. That's, that's one thing. The other response to the question, why is any of this important, is that I think questions like, are we alone or not, in the universe, and are we being visited, are some of the biggest and most profound questions we can ask ourselves. But actually, that question of are we alone or not in the universe might, of all the big philosophical questions that humankind has asked uh, over the years, that might just be the one we could answer. And all sorts of other questions, you know, about does consciousness survive death of the physical body, all, all those sorts of uh, metaphysical religious questions, maybe we'll never know. But if there is extraterrestrial life out there, 
we might actually discover it, and we might do it in a scientifically verifiable way, for example, that wouldn't, wouldn't need any, any debates about wormholes or, or warping space-time. There are, as many of you may know, a group of radio astronomers who use powerful radio telescopes to listen for evidence for the fingerprints of these extraterrestrials, a signal from another civilization. And uh, some of these radio telescopes are very powerful. There is currently construction, I believe, has just begun on a radio telescope called the Square Kilometer Array, which is expected to be fully operational by the end of the 2020s. I know, a little way, but worth waiting. It will be sufficiently powerful that it would be able to detect something. Uh, it would be able to detect a typical airport radar system at a distance of 50 light years. So if there are any detectable civilizations, certainly in our little corner of this one galaxy, the square kilometer array might find them. And if you, if you look at the exponential rise in the power of, of both things like radio telescopes and the computer that, that you need to process the data, I mean, the, we could do things now that would be unheard of five, 10 years ago. So as I say, it's a big and profound question, but we might be able to get an answer. And if we could get an answer, why wouldn't we want to? It, it would be arguably the most interesting and impactful scientific discovery of all time. And you know, so I, I think these, these sorts of questions are worth asking. In case anyone thinks no one's really asking this outside of a tiny fringe group, that's not true. In 2010, I attended two Royal Society discussion meetings in the United Kingdom. And the Royal Society is arguably one of the most prestigious scientific bodies in the world. It recently celebrated its 300th anniversary. So it's, it's got a little bit of a, a pedigree to it. Previous members and fellows include Sir Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, more recently Stephen Hawking. And the first of these two meetings that looked at this whole question of um, you know, life out there was called The Detection of Extraterrestrial Life and the Consequences for Science and Society. And uh, the Astronomer Royal, don't you love these British titles that we have? The, the Astronomer Royal, the Queen's Astronomer, chaired the discussion. And the second meeting was entitled Towards a Societal Agenda on Extraterrestrial Life. So if anyone thinks no one's really taking this seriously, um, you know, it's just a tiny bunch of radio astronomers, but other scientists aren't interested. That's not correct. These meetings were multidisciplinary. There were physicists and astrophysicists, but there were also uh, psychologists, uh, anthropologists, theologians, all coming together to ask two questions. How's the search for alien life going? And what happens 
if we find it. Uh, and one of the biggest and most controversial questions of all is this, what do we do if we pick up a signal? And many of you will have maybe heard Stephen Hawking speak about this. And there's a very famous quote where he said, when we encounter extraterrestrial life, it will be like when the European explorers encountered the Native Americans. Only this time, he warned, we, planet Earth, we will be the Native Americans. So Stephen Hawking <laughs> said, we ought to think very carefully before replying to a signal from an extraterrestrial civilization, or doing what other people say we should do, is forget this listening for signals. Let's start trying to send our own incredibly powerful ones. But the, the, I, I think one of the fascinating... <laughs> so yeah, us, us government types, we can do jokes. <laughs> um, this was actually one of the most controversial questions, was even if we could get beyond this question of should we reply, if we decide to reply, who would send that reply? Would it be the President of the United States, arguably the most powerful individual on the planet, but actually leader of only one country in the world? There are many, many countries, and there are many political persuasions. Secretary General of the United Nations might be a little bit more inclusive, but would we really want a bureaucrat being our first, you know, first encounter with extraterrestrial life? The Pope? Any religious leader? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the Pope, well, that's just one religion, but of course, there are many people who are of different religious persuasions. There are many people who have no religious beliefs. So again, are any of these categories the right people? Politicians, bureaucrats, religious leaders, and what about the people who have no voice? You know, one of the most powerful moments at the second Royal Society discussion meeting was when someone, someone had suggested that the answer to the question of who speaks to planet Earth should be a group of sages, a group of wise men and women from various different fields. And one, one of the people stood up and said, do, do the other five billion of us get a say in this? <laughs> so there are some questions. Incidentally, uh, the SETI community, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, the radio astronomers who you see leading the charge on much of the discussion on this, have something called Earth Speaks. And Earth Speaks was an outreach project. And what they wanted to do was engage with the public and get ideas not just from the scientific and academic community, but from you know, the public on what you might say to an extraterrestrial. And you know, there were some, some very poignant answers. You know, we have so many problems down here. Maybe you could help us. Um, there were some clever responses as, as to what we might say. Somebody submitted a response to the Earth Speaks um, website in binary. Uh, 
My favourite one was uh, one who's, who just said that the suggested message we would send would just say, um, don't bother coming here, we're really dangerous and violent and it's really boring. <laughs> <laughs> And what would we, what would we say? What would we say? And you know, if we did, if we did pick up an alien message, could we even understand it? And and then, if you could, if you could interact, whether they land on the White House lawn or or whether, and I know, you know, I know that. Light speed means that, that it takes years for the, the signal to arrive and years to come back. But let's just say, because these are the sorts of philosophical questions that I think people uh, would ask. And those, those are some of the questions that we, we might want to ask, or we might not. We might have other questions. Whoops, that's too far. But. Um, should we? One of the, I suppose, holy grails of all of this is that we wouldn't so much get a message, but we would tap into what uh, Timothy Ferris called the galactic internet, that, that in a sense there would be a sort of cosmic Facebook with civilizations, as they become communicable, posting the sum total of their knowledge. Uh, and um, the idea that Perhaps if we can ever detect such a thing, if it's out there, we could download the Encyclopedia Galactica if, if there is such a thing. But then that poses the question, should we? And, and at first it might seem a crazy question. Of course, why wouldn't we want to? Um, but what if they have given us what they benignly think would be you know, unlimited energy? Well, there's that great line in the movie The Medusa Touch um, with Richard Burton where he says, we find out what powers the sun and we make bombs out of it. So, so actually, there might be information in there that might be quite harmful. And then there's another question. When you go to school and college, if you're given all the answers on a plate, you don't really learn. So whilst it might be interesting to tap into the Encyclopedia Galactica and get all the answers. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should find these things out for ourselves. But then that takes you to a difficult moral area. Should we, you know, should we make our own medical discoveries um, so that we can thrive as a species and learn and evolve? Well, maybe we should say yes. But what if you have a loved one who has cancer? Then you just want to download the cancer cure um, straight away if it was out there. So those are some of the more sort of philosophical questions that I think might arise from extraterrestrial contact. Now I'm going to dip back out again um, before I go to Q&A. I'm going to talk about another case from the MOD's UFO files and um, the edge of our terrestrial technology. So it's, it's something you would want to, to take a look at. So there were these two Air Force bases and a UFO flew over one of them and was witnessed by a patrol of Air Force police. 
And then it flew over, uh, a couple of hours later, a second military base. And I spoke, I interviewed the, the next day the meteorological officer from this um, Air Force base. And I tell you, his voice was still shaking as he described to me a huge, flat, triangular-shaped craft moving very slowly towards the base at a speed of maybe no more than 50 or 60 miles an hour, three lights at each edge on the underside of this thing, and one larger, slightly fainter light in the middle. He said there was a low-frequency humming sound coming from this craft. Uh, he said it was unpleasant, one of those sounds that you can feel reverberating through your body, like, like standing too close to a bass speaker or something. And, and he said that the craft was maybe no more than 200 feet above the ground. As I say, going very slowly, suddenly it fired a pencil-thin beam of light down at the fields just beyond the perimeter fence. Not too dissimilar from what Charles Holt said about the beam of light. Other witnesses have reported this too. I always looked for the, the threads that bound these things together, the connecting things. This low-frequency hum is something that that comes up from time to time in some of the more compelling reports. So he said that this thing passed about 200 feet above the ground and maybe about 200 feet to, to his side. So maybe not directly over the base, but, but very, very close to it. And suddenly, he said, the, the light beam from this thing, which, which was not a wide beam, it was a pencil-thin beam like a laser, the beam just flicked off, and from this very, very slow speed of 50, 60 miles an hour, this huge, impossibly massive craft just accelerated away to the horizon in an instant. And I asked him to try and put a figure on it, and he said, well, you know, many times faster than a fast jet, a military jet. Uh, something like an F-16 or something. He said orders of magnitude beyond that. And this was a man with eight years' experience in the Air Force. And as I say, his voice was still shaking when I, I spoke to him the following morning. And, and he said, all I can tell you is I've never seen anything like that in, in my eight years in the Air Force, and I have absolutely no idea what it was that I, I encountered. Uh, Reports. We did a huge investigation. We briefed senior political and, and military figures in the Ministry of Defense. We asked the American government, is it possible that you have some secret prototype spy plane that you've test flown over our country and forgotten to tell us about? Um, the answer came back, no. The interesting follow-up question was that the American government asked us whether we had anything you know, like, like that. And that was interesting because, again, officially, Project Blue Book supposedly shut down in 1969, and there's not supposed to be any official investigation or interest in this at all. But clearly, someone somewhere was interested. And, you know, again, we'll get into perhaps some 
talk about cover-up and conspiracy in, in Q&A, uh, our standard soundbite on all of this, this, this no defense significance, quote-unquote, line that we trotted out, clearly sounded a bit lame when, when you were dealing with something like that. And I, I think if I had dared just uh, dismiss this Air Force officer and tell him, don't worry, it was of no defense significance, uh, well, <laughs> I, I would have not wanted to have stuck around. And when you go through the somewhere between 52 and 60,000 pages of, of documents, you'll find some cases like that. They, some of them are online at the National Archives. Uh, unfortunately, you have to pay a small fee for them, but I think, I think various people have copied some of the good stuff elsewhere. It is out there. Cases like that are in the files, but the, the problem is that, um, as I say, by volume, most of the UFO sightings, of course, did turn out to be misidentifications. So you have to wade through hundreds of pages of, of, of clearly just people seeing aircraft lights and weather balloons to, to get to the good stuff. I mean, I remember in my first week on the UFO project, somebody phoned up and said that they'd, they'd seen a huge, bright, white light. And I tried to tease out more details and it transpired that there was a red light on one side and a green light on the other side and when, when I asked where this was the witness said well it's not too far from Heathrow Airport um, and you have to wade through an awful lot of that and then suddenly you get to to the good stuff the Rendlesham Forest Incident, the incident that I mentioned from 1993, which is generally known as the Cosford incident. Um, sometimes the categories of cases that gave us most cause for concern, of course, were near misses between UFOs and uh, military and indeed sometimes commercial aircraft. Uh, there was one report which talked about a near miss between a commercial airline and, and a UFO, and it said that the pilot had only time to shout, look out, look out, and everyone on the flight deck braced themselves for impact, and suddenly this thing, whatever it was, just passed very rapidly down one, one side. And, you know, I don't care whether people are believers, skeptics, or somewhere in the middle. Something like that shows that whatever you believe about UFOs, there are some serious air safety issues, defense, national security issues. As I say, whether you think these things are Russian, Martian, whatever you think, uh, we ignore these things, I think, at our peril. So, again, is this a case of um, dumping all this information out into the public domain with a few really, really good cases in amongst a whole lot of fairly low-level stuff? Uh, I, I suppose it's a perfect illustration of the old saying that we sometimes had in government, that the best place to hide a book really is in a library. 
And I think that some that sort of thing does go on. But I I think I'm going to just make a couple of concluding remarks and then uh, throw it open for a wider discussion on all this. And and you know in obviously in just about an hour or, or even slightly less, but to give everyone the chance to, to ask questions and, and about this, I can really only scratch the surface of what I think is a, a vast uh, body of information and a huge archive of case files. I mean, I, I hope that in this short presentation I've given you a brief glimpse into what I suppose really are the real life X-Files. And I hope that as well with the more philosophical part uh, about the, the implications, and I hope we can particularly get into some of this in the discussion, um, politics, religion, wh whatever it is. Um, you know, this is, is going to be a hugely impactful subject. Or is it? And I say that with a slightly mischievous uh, expression, because that one of my other colleagues, uh, who's a retired colonel called John Alexander, who, had a, who, who looked at this issue in the US and, and of course, so comes from a, a similar perspective you know, when it comes to this subject, as do I, he's talked about this sort of stuff too. And he's you know, we all agree that yes, you know, this could arguably be the most important scientific discovery of all time. It would affect all sorts of things from from uh, political um, agendas to religion, uh, personal paradigm and worldview, science, technology. But as as you know, we we said, does any of that? You know, if we found alien life, if we encountered them, if we got the answers to any of this, does any of that mean that I don't have to go to work tomorrow? <laughs> and sadly, even if we find extraterrestrial life, you probably will have to go to work tomorrow. But I think, I, I, am, I don't know whether or not we're being visited. I honestly don't. If, if, if anyone has got a crashed spaceship hidden away in an Air Force hangar. As I say, even with a top secret security clearance and the need to know, I didn't, I didn't get told. Um, if, if that does exist, I don't know. So are we being visited? I don't know. But I think some of the UFO cases are maybe more interesting than people might suppose. And, and as I say, the believers only have to be right one time, and, and they've won their argument. But I don't know. As to life out there in the universe, absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm sure there is. And if there is, they should be detectable, because civilizations, if, if, we, if, if life evolves and, and becomes intelligent, and intelligence seems to be a pretty good survival strategy. We're doing reasonably well out of it. Um, if they're out there, we'll find them. And I believe that ours will be the, you know, this will be the generation 
that, that finds it. So throughout history, people have looked up to the skies and, and wondered what's out there. All of us here in this room might just get to find out. Thank you very much for listening. And questions and I don't know how um, people want to work this but why don't well, if anyone's got a question why don't you raise your hand I'll point and then shout it out and oh it's Nick, Nick could you turn the lights back up yes Thank you. I could is that there we are uh, yes I wonder if anyone here has had a UFO experience or knows someone that has and if they have let them tell us about it Okay, let me, let me take that question, and before we do that, let me do two things with it. Let me, first of all, if anyone in the audience has seen a UFO, or had what they believe to be a UFO or extraterrestrial experience, please raise your hands. That's, that's you know, that's an interest, that's, now, of, keep those hands up, please. Of those people who've seen a UFO, how many of you actually made a report to anyone? Not as many. Yeah. Well, did, did, did anyone who's seen a UFO report it, either try to report it to the government or contact the media or a UFO organization like MUFON? Um, and I think what, what that shows us is that I, I think it was actually quite a, an interesting yeah, a reasonably significant proportion of people had seen a UFO, but of those people who had seen it, an awful lot hadn't reported it, possibly, and this is something that I came across in my government work, either through fear of not being believed or fear maybe of being ridiculed. And those, that was always a problem to us at the Ministry of Defense. We knew that we were only really looking at the tip of the iceberg when it, it came to these reports. And for all we knew, there was a whole bunch of even more compelling sightings, maybe with some evidence. I mean, uh, I didn't really get into this, but of course, a lot of what we were interested in the Ministry of Defense in getting was not just the stories from the witness, but radar tapes that might corroborate a visual sighting, photos and videos that Air Force intelligence experts in imagery analysis could, could look at. Um, so there's a whole bunch of, of things out there. Um, and there may be people in the audience, of course, who have seen something but are sitting next to maybe family members or friends who they haven't even told. So maybe the number's even higher. I don't know if anyone in the audience who's had an experience uh, wants to share it, um, but uh, let's, if, if you do, or if you've got another question, just, just raise your hands, and if we get to an experience, that's great. If we get to another question, that's great too. Yes. Uh, uh, yes, you with the, the glasses, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, <coughs> In uh, 1969, October, very clear night, I came into my mother's house late at night, and there was a big white light above her house. I went into the house, 
spent a few minutes to get my binoculars to see what it was. Came back out, looked through the binoculars, still looked just like a big black light. I would say this thing was, it was huge. It was big, maybe a couple hundred yards up above our house. Now, by the time I get back, I hear the roar in the distance of airplanes. I look way over the horizon, about 20 degrees this way, 20 degrees that way. There's two planes I can barely hear. This light is not making any noise, totally quiet. All of a sudden, there's something, two things come out of the bottom of this light. One shoots toward that plane, one toward that plane. I thought they were rockets. I thought they were going to blow the planes up. They were there in a flash. I mean, like half a second, they were there. They, one followed that plane, one followed that plane for maybe three, four seconds. They did reverse, zip, right back to the big white light. The white light started glowing bright orange. I'm afraid this thing's going to explode. So I was ready to run to the house, but when it got a bright orange, it went straight up in a half a second. It was totally out of sight. So I don't know. I only know two things. I, it happened like it was yesterday. Something I never forget. I mean, just like his last night, I saw this thing. It was intelligently controlled. Whether it was our Earth, I first thought maybe it's one of those nighttime refueling operations, you know, <laughs> with the, the planes didn't go yeah. together. No, that didn't we, happen. This thing, the, the two things that went after the planes, the light that went up, the speed was unbelievable. It was like a shooting star. Yeah. It's there. Well, we, <laughs> we were very often, it was the speeds and maneuvers of these things that, that we were particularly interested in. I, I, Thank you for sharing that account. I would urge you, if, if you do maybe want, even after all these years, to make an official report. There is an organization called the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON for short. They have representatives in every state. So if you just Google MUFON or MUFON in your state, um, do please consider reaching out to them. I was just wondering if anybody, did there have any experiences where things came out of something, yes. followed something and came back. Yes, there is one very famous case, actually from Iran, when Iran was uh, back in 1976, before the revolution, when uh, the Shah's regime was on good terms with the American government. And there was a case of a pilot um, called Parviz Jafari, who actually retired as a general and he was scrambled to intercept a UFO that had intruded into restricted airspace. And at one point, he saw, um, broadly similar to what you were describing, a smaller object or light detach from the larger object and approach his aircraft very rapidly. He thought he was under attack. Now, he had tried, I, I should say, to launch an air-to-air -air missile at this, this object. And just as he was about to press launch, his weapons control panel went offline. Yeah, you made a good point. I have told very few people about this, especially back in 69. They'd ask me, do you see the little game man? Yeah. They think you were nuts. And I said, look, I'm not even talking about this anymore. 
So for 46 years, I've been wanting to talk to somebody. Thank you. I mean, I think, you know, I, when, when we go around and hear these, these sorts of accounts from people, I think, I think you can sense, firstly, the sincerity, and secondly, you know, the emotion, particularly with, with people that have maybe not had a chance to, to talk to people about this. I know people who have made reports to the government, say, when I was doing that job, who hadn't told, you know, their spouse or, or their... Uh, closest friends. And I think that whatever we believe about UFOs, we, we do ourselves a disservice when we, we ridicule or ignore what, what a heck of a lot of people are seeing, whatever these things turn out to be. So thank you everyone for sharing your stories. Um, please feel free to continue sharing stories or asking questions or making comments. have been a car, it was just a one red line. And 
I don't know, I've always wondered, are there any association between orbs and UFOs that you're aware of? Well, you know, this is where it gets tricky because I think language and, and kind of belief play a part in some of this. One person's UFO is another person's orb. Other people might say, well, it's just ball lightning. But even amongst meteorologists, there's no universal acknowledgement that ball lightning even exists. Uh, the Ministry of Defense in 2006 declassified a report codenamed Project Condine, which speculated that some of these reports might be due to exotic atmospheric plasma phenomena that science and meteorology doesn't yet fully understand. But sometimes I think that's just a fancy shorthand for we just don't know. <laughs> and governments, governments don't like to say we don't know. And that's one of the reasons, I think, for the secrecy. I'm not a great believer in a huge X-Files type cover-up. But I do believe, certainly, and I know that there have been consistent policy to, to downplay uh, all, all this. And part of the reason why is that no government can really say, yeah, there's something in our airspace. Occasionally, they're seen by pilots, military personnel, tracked on radar. There are some near misses with planes, but hey, we don't know. <laughs> no government likes to, to be put in that. The governments exist on projecting power and authority. They don't like to say we don't know. So that's one reason, I think, for what has been a consistently defensive and unhelpful attitude on the part of many governments all around the world on this subject. Right at the back. What event made you a believer? Well, I'm not sure that I would classify myself as a believer. I, I think, though, that um, in terms of the events that made me think, well, hey, Whatever it is, it's, there's more than, than just swamp gas here. I think certainly the Rendlesham Forest incident that, that I mentioned is, is one of them, and the Cosford incident is, is another. But Rendlesham in particular, and I mean, uh, in, in the book that I've just written, I try, it's, it's almost like a perfect storm of everything that makes a UFO case compelling. Multiple witnesses over a series of three nights. Those witnesses were in the military. The UFO was tracked on radar. There was physical trace evidence. There is a paper trail of government documents, the authenticity of which is not disputed. They're on the government's own website. So, so I think, I'm not saying that I'm a fully paid up believer, but in terms of what certainly shifted me uh, along the spectrum somewhat, it is the Rendlesham Forest. Case. Um. I read the book, and in it, one of the witnesses says that he thought, if, at least I'm remembering this, that they weren't maybe something from another planet, but us from the future. Yes. There, there are, I mean, I think sometimes, mainly because of the influence of, mainly because of the influence of science fiction, we do maybe get a little bit overly focused on what, what's known as the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. But amongst the believers, there are not perhaps equal in number, but there are certainly those who subscribe to the theory that what we're dealing with is either 
some sort of intrusion from other dimensions. And interesting that, of course, I mentioned CERN and the Large Hadron Collider. So such things are not quite as far-fetched as they might have sounded a few years ago. But yes, there are a, a number of people who say um, that we might be dealing not with extraterrestrials, but with time travelers from the future. And I mean, one of, one of the arguments that proponents of that theory put forward is they say, well, you know, that's not exactly, you know, the sorts of bug-eyed monsters that you see in some, that's, that's kind of humanoid. And maybe that's, maybe, you know, that's us from, from the year whatever. So, yeah, there are certainly a number of people, including Jim Penniston, who say maybe this is from the future. And I know there's, there's certainly one professor, uh, Ronald Mallet, who's published some theoretical um, papers on, on time travel. Um, so, yeah, if, if, you, if you haven't already checked out Ronald Mallet, uh, check, check out his work. Uh, yes? thing that made you outrageous and made me quite mad in your book was the fact that Burroughs and Tennyson were unable to gain access to their very own medical records so they could be treated by the VA for PTSD and other health issues. Uh, and this all came out in your book yes. last year. Right in the middle of the VA scandal we've heard about. What is the status of that situation to these men? Yeah, um, I, I didn't have time to go into that side of it, but because of their close approach to this object, whatever it was, both John Burroughs and Jim Penniston believe that health problems that they have had and continue to have are attributable, attributable to this UFO. And uh, so they uh, have an attorney, and they were trying. They were engaging with the VA to to try and get this, and they were told, uh, "Sorry, your medical records seem to be classified. You, you, we can't get them to your physician." Um, some six six former congressional representatives, uh, Republicans, Democrats, and Libertarian, all came together to co-sign a letter to the President of the United States about the Rendlesham Forest incident and about John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. And whether it's due to that or whether it's due to the continued involvement of a very tenacious attorney called Pat Fraskogner, I don't know, but John Burroughs recently did get from the VA a full settlement. And that may, there were a couple of mainstream media outlets that picked up on that. And one of the interesting things about that case was the VA had said, no, we're not going to release this. And then the attorney said, well, you do realize we have, through the UK's Freedom of Information Act, a declassified document, codenamed Project Condine, that says the well-reported Rendlesham Forest incident is a case where it might be postulated that witnesses were exposed to UAP radiation for longer time periods than normal. Confronted with that document, the VA settled. <laughs> now, 
UAP, by the way, is simply a Ministry of Defense kind of jargon for UFO. It's, it's unidentified aerial phenomena. In many of our internal policy discussion documents, we use that more scientific sounding term just to try and get away from the pop culture baggage uh, that, that unfortunately the term UFO has. Um, Jim Penniston has kind of dropped out of this lately, but I know that the attorney is still involved. Some of the other witnesses, there were other witnesses too, there is talk maybe of a class action at, at some stage. So the story is still ongoing, but John Burroughs at least did get, literally within the last, uh, I think, month or so, his, his full settlement from the VA. So that's good news. Uh, yes? Yes. You had the Ministry of Defense, and you all worked on your cases. So you couldn't. Did you, did you have someone like you could call in the United States or Canada or? Both? No, there is. You're you're absolutely right. There is surprisingly little international cooperation on this issue now, and indeed dating back to, you know, the late 40s when the modern UFO phenomenon. Uh, really commenced. In, I understand part of that, and it's because I think, firstly, there's a jurisdictional thing in terms of, of for example, getting access to witnesses, uh, getting access certainly to military radar data. My terms of reference were to investigate any sightings reported within the United Kingdom's air defense region. So I didn't actually have the jurisdiction to, to go beyond. Could we have done more? Should we have done more? Yes, I think we, we should have. Uh, clearly this is a global phenomenon. And my suspicion is that an awful lot of different countries were kind of working on the same thing. And maybe if we could have gotten together, we would have made a little bit more progress. But I think, unfortunately, that speaks to a much more general point about lack of international cooperation. And most governments that investigate UFOs have done it through the Air Force or the DOD. So once you get the military and defense doing anything, it kind of tends to be very compartmentalized and secret. And, and that is one of the factors that mitigates against international cooperation. Interestingly enough, only the French government, I believe, the French government is one of the few governments I'm aware of that embeds its UFO project not in the military but in the scientific community. And it's actually part of uh, the French National uh, Space Agency. Uh, yes? I wanted to ask you, do you believe that there's aliens still, I mean, that are here on Earth right now that our government keeps, that our government has with them and uh, like Area 51, and they do reverse engineering with the, with their help, like on the stealth and stuff like that, which are, you know, that go through radar and it can't be detected and stuff like that. I've certainly, I've heard a lot of people claim that that's true. There are certainly some whistleblowers like Bob Lazar, is I suppose the most famous one, who have said, uh, yes, that's true. I have not been able to personally verify any of that. Um, 
So, you know, there's an old saying in the intelligence analyst community, interesting if true. Um, I, I don't know, I'm afraid. I've, I've certainly, I've heard the stories, but I can't verify any of it. Um, at the back there. Yes, there are, there are a number of skeptical theories that have kind of tried to say, well, what, what strange lights could these people have seen um, that have an ordinary explanation? And one was indeed uh, the Orford Ness Lighthouse. The problem with that theory was, and I've been to Rendlesham Forest many times, um, to film TV documentaries and news stories on this. And I've gone back, and I've actually walked the ground, and the problem is the topography. From most of the locations where the people were actually seeing the UFO, the lighthouse is not visible, and even when it is, it, it is, it is a tiny pinprick of light on the distant horizon. And of course it doesn't explain any of the, the radar or the physical evidence. I went there most recently last year with a, a film crew and the director said, we've got to do the lighthouse theory, let's go there. And we drove like about 12 miles to get there, got out of the car and it was still in the distance. And I won't tell you what the director said, but it was, <laughs> it was like, oh, for, let's get back in the car. This is a, this is a crop. I mean, there are, so, yeah, but some people say, well, maybe it was the lighthouse shining through the trees. Other people have said maybe it was uh, the lights from a, a police car or a burning pile of manure. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I think sometimes some of those skeptical theories are even more bizarre than, than saying, well, maybe. Uh, yeah. I live between uh, Johnson City and Jonesboro. Last fall, approximately 10.30 p.m., moonless sky, no clouds. I had my dog out at that time. And peripherally, I picked up something uh, west, which is Jonesboro. It was a iridescent blip, about the size of a normal star. Uh, what was interesting is I followed this blip from about 10 degrees above the horizon to the middle of the sky. And it appeared to make a 90 degree turn, which I could not see, but I counted one, two, three, four, five, going south. This took approximately three and a half to four seconds. I thought it was quite interesting. Yeah. It obviously wasn't a satellite. Sure, I mean, those sorts of Maneuvers. The motion was very steady, mm -hmm. no wavering, and uh, I thought it was rather, rather interesting. Matter of fact, the dog even worked out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you very much for that. Yes. Okay. 
Um, and in fact, I, I actually was one of the people who spoke at the uh, citizens hearing. Um, for, for those that haven't heard of this, uh, some activists in the UFO community feel so strongly that the government uh, isn't doing this but should be, that they've said, and their, their catchphrase phrase is, if Congress isn't doing its job, we'll do it for them. So uh, they actually held hearings in the exact format that, that would happen if Congress was doing it. And Paul Hellyer, a former defense minister and indeed deputy prime minister of Canada, is one of the people who has spoken out uh, most strongly about this. So again, you know, there, there have been, I think, um, attempts uh, to uh, kind of do a bit of character assassination and say, oh, these people must be crazy. But when you have former um, secretaries of state for defense and, and you know, senior politicians coming and saying, hey, there's something to this, I, I think it, it ill behooves us to, to just ignore this. Uh, yes? very much for that. Uh, astronaut sightings, I mean there are entire TV shows on astronaut sightings and NASA's unexplained files is, is one of them. Um, pilots tend to be reluctant to be too public in their comments about this. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of a UFO encounter that took place at Chicago O'Hare Airport in, in 2006. The airline concerned basically ordered its pilots and employees do not discuss this with the media. And it was only when a, a crusading reporter with the Tribune started making FOI requests that all this stuff that had been denied turned out actually to be true. So if pilots are warned off from from this kind of thing. Uh, you can imagine that NASA's not too keen on, on its astronauts discussing these things. But as you've shared, I think when you meet some of these people privately, they'll go a little bit further. And, and some of them, I think Story Musgrove is on the record with, with certainly quite a very interesting unexplained sighting. Again, skeptics might say, well, maybe some of that relates to a kind of secret but terrestrial space program. Um, so there's always a kind of counter-argument. But um, yeah, thank you for, for that anecdote. Uh, yes? Uh, I mean, it's sort of humorously, but uh, have you ever been followed by the men in black? Um, <laughs> I, I have, I've never been followed by the men in black, but I suppose Having done this for the government, I've been accused of being one of the main factors. <laughs> <laughs> um, was there a yes? I have two comments. Sure. 
is you said, I think you said, I'll paraphrase, if, if extraterrestrials come, um, who should answer the phone? Yes. Um, I have a suggestion. Please. Uh, did you see uh, the, the uh, Gene Wilder movie, Willy Wonka? <laughs> I think I did. Yeah, with the gold wrappers inside, it's kind of like a lottery. I uh -huh. that would be a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> we want to have in our leaders who would uh, argue about it. And yeah, and, and why not? Because arguably, a a typical person, you know, yeah. might actually be more representative than than a leader, be it political, religious, or whatever. So if that shows up in your next book, I, I want a piece. Of <laughs> <laughs> I've never met him before. <laughs> and my other comment: I'm a clinical psychologist. I've been in practice since. The, late 80s, and, and I guess tonight's the first night I feel like that I've been doing for a long time maybe what you've been describing. I mean, part of my job is to decide whether people are out of touch with reality or, or not, and, and so I weed through a lot of that stuff, in your words, to get to the good stuff, and over the years I've had a number of people not only talk about UFOs, but about... Um, um, abductions um, and, and the things that go along with that, their, their bodies. Sure. No, thank you for, for sharing that. And I think, again, it, it, um, it, shows, it, it shows that we do everyone a, a disservice when we ignore what people say. Sure, I don't think anyone would pretend that in the field of UFOs, as in many fields, actually, but, yeah, there are some, some crazy people and some charlatans. But you know, most of the people are, are entirely sincere and have genuinely seen something or experienced something that, that they can't really uh, match up with, with anything um, more usual. And there's a marvelous line in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind that I think sums that up very well. And it's where the, the government types are getting together and, and saying, well, why these people? And, and one of the things, one of the quotes is, these are ordinary people in an extraordinary situation. And I think that sums it up quite nicely. Uh, um, yes? In your government, was there any type of contingency plan if aliens contacted us for mass hysteria and controlling the population? No, there wasn't. And um, uh, I actually... <laughs> One time I got into trouble with the UFO community because to promote one of the video games I, I was doing, I wrote a spoof alien abduction, uh, alien invasion war plan based on declassified Iraq war documents. And an awful lot of people thought it was real. Um, and, and it wasn't. But no, there is no contingency plan at all. Should there be? Yes, I, I don't see why not. It, I think the problem, the problem would be how you defend it. But I think you could say that government does have plans for a lot of low probability, high impact scenarios, like a Carrington event, uh, like, like a comet or, or meteor impact. So why shouldn't it have one for that? Because, and we haven't had time to get into any of this, but of course there are a number of, if we, if we did get into, for example, actual face-to-face -face contact, there's, right. there's a, a biohazard 
issue. And indeed, certainly in terms of the space program, NASA certainly has an office of forward and back contamination. So there are questions. But, but, but the, the next step would be what would it do to the, the spiritual structure of the population if, if, if so many people believed for so long that there was nothing there, and then all of a sudden something appears friendly, intelligent, what, what would the ramifications be on society as we know it? Well, that, um, there's a theologian called Ted Peters who's done some research into this, and he was one of the speakers at the Royal Society discussion meeting. He polled a, a lot of religious people uh, of different faiths and said if extraterrestrial life, including intelligent civilizations, were found, what would be the effect on, on your faith? Because you hear a lot of people say, oh, there'd be panic in the streets, it would, it would, you know, people's religious faith would collapse. Actually, it transpired that people said that their religious faith would either not change or would even be strengthened. Um, the interesting postscript to that was that each religion thought that their particular denomination would deal with it really well, but everyone else's would <laughs> Yes, I, I think um, that raises a very interesting question. We certainly, um, if, if you look at some of the things coming out of defense contractors, there's a debate about where the line is between very, very good camouflage and a sort of Harry Potter invisibility folk. But there are certainly, you know, there are aspirations in, in that area. If that's the sort of thing that we're thinking about and toying with, well, you know, imagine how far we've come in the last 200 years. We've come from what? Horse and cart to stealth fighter and, and space probe in 200 years. In a universe around four, 14 billion years old, imagine a civilization not with a 200-year head start on us, but 2 million. What might that look like? What technology might... I mean, there's a marvelous quote from the sci-fi author... Arthur C. Clarke, and he says, any sufficiently um, advanced technology will be indistinguishable from magic. Uh, so yeah, I absolutely take the point that if they wanted to hide themselves, they, one would think they could do so. Um, so maybe part of it is that um, they want to be seen, but not openly. Maybe it's a test. Uh, maybe it's about our response, uh, psychology. Um, but, so, you know, the trouble with all of this, in a sense, is that we can only come at it 
from our own perspective. So you can't help but take this anthropocentric view. And I mean, it always amuses me when people say, well, aliens wouldn't do that because. Um, and I say, well, how do you know what an alien would or wouldn't do? Uh, yes. Yes. No. Uh, yes. We did look at the crop circle phenomenon, but I'm afraid to say I ended up, uh, whilst I acknowledge that they are incredibly beautiful and complex, I, I did not believe there was any connection with, with UFOs. <laughs> and I'm afraid I came to uh, realize that people were, were making incredibly complex patterns. And I mean, sometimes they'll recreate them for advertising campaigns. And, and some of these people, you know, there's an image of people out with planks of wood and, and wire sights on their baseball caps. And they do that, but they also take GPS and night vision goggles. So I, I think uh, I'm, a, I'm a crop circle skeptic, I'm afraid. Uh. Yeah, I'm going to answer the question, uh, and then I'm going to ask you the question. I think the answer is we simply don't know. Here's a question. Why haven't... Aliens, if they are on our planet, why haven't they tried to contact us and say, hi guys, have heard a thing? What are the theories that people have as to why they're not doing this, other than we don't know? Yeah, there are many theories about that. Um, probably one, one of the most popular responses to the why don't they land on the White House lawn? Well, apart from the fact that we'd start shooting at them. But, um, but, but one of the most popular answers to the question, why no open contact, um, is the idea that it's an anthropological um, answer. And to, to a civilization so advanced, that there may genuinely be little left to discover and invent, the direction in which younger emerging civilizations will go might just be the last thing in the universe of any interest to them. And the moment there is open contact, that there's contamination. And, and the, the idea of what might this civilization go on to do and become becomes meaningless because there's, there's the mingling. So I, I realize that I've just answered by really saying it's the prime directive from Star Trek. But <laughs> that, that probably is the answer. Uh, I, I, I suspect I'm being told that we should probably take one more question. The good news, I think, and I do apologize to those that did not get a chance to ask something, there is a reception, I, I think. In, in 120. So to, to anyone who didn't get to ask uh, a question, I apologize, but we can continue the conversation. Could, could we have someone who hasn't asked anything before? Um, yes, over there. What about Roswell in New Mexico? I mean, from what I've heard, they, it's a fenced-in area, and they actually are supposedly supposed to have a, a, a UFO that crashed there. So what's the deal with that? Something undoubtedly did crash near Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. The problem is that because this is, is now 
so many uh, years in the past, virtually none of the direct witnesses are with us anymore. So sadly, with, with that and with the absence of any contemporary government documents, we will maybe never even know. I, 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 you know, believers say it was an alien spacecraft. Skeptics say it was a, a weather balloon. In a sense, Roswell is, is perhaps the perfect encapsulation of the polarity that one sees in the debate about the UFO phenomenon, and, you know, aliens or, or weather balloons. Uh, so I, I'm afraid I can't answer the, the question, but it is perhaps the ground zero of the modern UFO mystery. And, and with that, I will thank you again, and uh, I'll, I'll hope to carry on. <laughs>